Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm Dr. Katherine Pang, and it's so great to share this time together. Welcome to The Living Way, the podcast ministry of the Christian Life Institute, and the Christian Life Institute's purpose to grow Christians forward, to live victoriously as overcomers in, but not of the world, through the hope and healing of Christ. If you miss any of our messages, you can find a link and more information on our website at christianlifeinstitute.com. Our podcasts are available on Thursdays. Please subscribe to our mailing list on our website, christianlifeinstitute.com, to receive notifications about our podcasts, blogs, and other events at CLI. As we begin, you may want to grab a Bible and follow along as we share scripture throughout our time together. Our message today is titled, Living Christ in the Beatitudes, A Brief Journey. As we come to this message today, we'll be exploring some of the gleanings from a deep and wonderful book written by Martin Lloyd-Jones entitled The Sermon on the Mount. This is another one of our recommended books at the Christian Life Institute and our personal spiritual formation journey. This podcast today is a little different in that we will be asking you to pause and reflect and think about even writing some answers or identifying and thinking through some answers as we move through some of the gleanings for today. For those of you who are not familiar with Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh Protestant minister and medical doctor who was influential in the Calvinist wing of the British evangelical movement in the 20th century. For almost 30 years, he was the minister of Westminster Chapel in London. I would encourage you as we begin to take a moment to remind yourself that we come as his children, his sheep, his special treasured possession and as one who, as Lloyd-Jones states, is, quote, perfectly clear in mind with regard to the essential character of the Christian, ask yourself, do you come clearly in his saving grace and standing fast in your salvation in him as desirous to be blessed in him and through him? Take a few moments and reflect on God's saving grace on your salvation and take this time to just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gift that you have so freely given me. Lloyd-Jones continues, and I quote, We are to be interested primarily in character before we consider conduct. And that's why we talk a lot about being before doing at the Christian Life Institute, learning how to be in Christ before we do Christ. Take a moment again and pause the podcast and ask yourself, what are some characteristics God desires to see in his children, in you, in me? Can you find some scriptures to support your answers? As we begin to examine the individual proclamations and some of the lessons in the Beatitudes, and we're going to be studying two today, Lloyd-Jones reminds us, and I quote, the Beatitudes are a description of what every Christian is meant to be. The Beatitudes for each one of God's children who profess faith in him. The Beatitudes are a description of character. All Christians, all Christ followers are meant to manifest all of these characteristics. Lloyd-Jones also reminds us that although we are all meant to be all of them and manifest all of them, sometimes we do more than others. And this is a work that can only be done through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Lloyd-Jones also emphasizes the critical point that the description of character in the Beatitudes are not natural tendencies, are not our natural tendencies, propensities, and certainly not our susceptibilities, as we teach at the Christian Life Institute. 
He states, and I quote, each one of them is wholly a disposition which is produced by grace alone and the operation of the Holy Spirit upon us. We cannot in and of ourselves bring about these characteristics. Only the Holy Spirit working in us can allow us to stand fast in the way that we are exhorted to be as we continue to examine a few of these Beatitudes. Lloyd-Jones also writes, and I quote, A person does not determine his natural temperament, though he governs it up to a point. What does that mean to you, and how does that look in your life? What are some of your victories and your struggles? Lloyd-Jones reminds us that we are to be different. In 1 Peter 2.9, we read, and I quote, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Lloyd-Jones reminds us, and I quote, that our ambition should be to be like Christ, in him, by him, and through him. What is your ambition? I would encourage you to dig deep into the reality of your heart as you answer this question and reflect on the ramifications of its proclamation. Lloyd-Jones reminds us that the Christian starts by saying he is not living for this world. We in Christ, as we know from Paul, and we remind ourselves of this frequently at the Christian Life Institute, are antithetical to the world. The letter of John reminds us we are not to love the world nor the things in the world. The people, yes, and we can only do that through the power of Christ. How do you respond to this truth? He continues, Lloyd-Jones, to state, and I quote, If we truly believe that we are a people who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, as we read in 1 Peter 2.9, then we must believe that this has happened to us in order that we might show forth his praises. How does this miraculous saving act of Christ cause you to show forth his praises? Can you think of a few specific examples? And here comes another challenge question, of which we're going to have a lot in this message today. Do you truly, deeply, from the depths of yourself, believe you belong to a different kingdom? Take some time to reflect on the marvelous truth of 1 John 4.4, which states, and I quote, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So what do we know about God's kingdom? It's primarily a spiritual one. Wherever the reign of Christ is being manifested, the kingdom of God is there. It's present in the hearts of true believers. And it's the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus Christ. In John 3, 5, we read, quote, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus introduces that the kingdom of God is one a person can enter into, as well as that one must be born again to bring about the entrance. The question arises, Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God in Mark 1, 14-15, as did Paul in Acts 28, 30-31. The Bible states plainly that the kingdom is an entity that one can enter into even before Jesus' return, even before the second coming. Note that Matthew 5.20 states, and I quote, 
For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus adds in Matthew 7:21, and I quote, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Moreover, Jesus declares in Matthew 18:3, and I quote, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, a person can enter into God's kingdom, but there are requirements. In Mark 1.15, Jesus dogmatically states, and I quote, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled implies that nothing can be added to it. That time will be extended no longer. That the kingdom is at hand means that it is near or close. It does not suggest distance in either space or time. By using these phrases together, Jesus indicates that it can be entered into at once when God's basic requirements are met. And the most basic requirement is taught in John 3, to be born again. Jesus thus announces when the kingdom could be entered immediately. When Jesus and the apostles preached the gospel, they were inviting people to become part of that kingdom immediately without having to wait for the resurrection at Christ's return. The kingdom of God is a spiritual entity. Its headquarters is in heaven. But at the same time, its agents, initially Jesus, then later the apostles and the church, we as children of God, laboring on earth to make it better known and expand its citizenry. The kingdom of God is that entity in which those who are a part of it recognize and submit to the rule of the Father and Son. A person becomes part of it by being born again, and those who are born again become sons of God, sons and daughters of the living God. God's kingdom, as presently configured, consists of God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and everyone who has professed faith in Christ, all who have called upon the name of Jesus to be saved. So let us pause and reflect on a few questions that Lloyd-Jones poses. Are you ruled by Christ? Is Christ your King and Lord? Are you manifesting His qualities in your daily life? Is it your desire, your ambition, your intent to manifest his qualities in your daily life? Do you see how this is meant to be? Are you filled by his presence? Are you living in a true state of fulfillment in him? As we continue, let us again remind ourselves that God is concerned with our spiritual condition. Lloyd-Jones writes, and I quote, What the Lord is concerned about here is the spirit, and it is poverty of spirit. We struggle because we lose ourselves into ourselves and rely on ourselves rather than Christ. So ask yourself, what mountains are you trying to climb on your own? Do you worry what others think of you? Are you lost in yourself and forgotten your way in Christ? He has a way. He can make a way. He knows the way. This first beatitude in Matthew 5, 3, which in the New Living Translation states, and I quote, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And that's not physical poverty. That's spiritual poverty. If you recognize that you are poor in spirit, you can embrace that your surrender to 
and immersion in the character of Christ in his spirit will allow you to walk in the fullness of his way. Lloyd-Jones writes, and I quote, The man who is truly poor in spirit need not worry so much about his personal appearance and the impression he makes, except, perhaps, to consider his representation of Christ. Are you concerned about the representation of yourself or the representation of how you are reflecting the transforming power of Jesus Christ in your life? As Lloyd-Jones writes, and I quote, it's ultimately a man's attitude towards himself. Our journey into the Sermon on the Mount begins with an assessment of self. It's the first module of the Christian Life Institute called Detoxification, where we cultivate an acute awareness of ourselves so that we can recognize our desperate need and dependence on Christ. Lloyd-Jones reminds us, and I quote, there is a clear-cut division between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. As we know from Paul, they are antithetical in every way. Lloyd-Jones reminds us what emphasis the world places on its belief in self-reliance, self-confidence, and self-expression. Notice all the self-words. What is the emphasis in God's kingdom? Its emphasis is dependence, desperate dependence on Christ, on the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a reliance, a desperate dependence, a surrender to the only one who is able. So ask yourself, and here comes the ouch. What is holding you back from stepping in completely and crying out to Jesus, I am utterly poor in spirit without all of you in all of me? Jesus himself proclaimed in John 5.30, and I quote, I can do nothing of myself. So what does total dependence on Christ look like in your life? What does it mean to you to be poor in spirit? Lloyd-Jones writes, and I quote, It does not mean that we should be retiring, weak, or lacking courage. What should, then, we be in terms of character traits? To be poor in spirit does not mean we have no individuality, no personal personality. God has created us individually and personally, and you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made, as we read in Psalm 139.14. So don't falsely crucify yourself. Are you pretending to be what you are not? Are you faking or putting forth certain aspects of yourself? Allow the God who created you to transform you and perform his perfect work in you. In John 17, 6, we read, and I quote, You do not have to go out of life in order to be poor in spirit. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. Let's read Isaiah 57:15, and I quote, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's read 2 Peter 2, 15-16, and I quote, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, they have followed the way of Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. The essential personality remains the same, and yet he is poor in spirit at the same time. So what does this look like in your life? Lloyd-Jones writes, and I quote, What is meant by being poor in spirit? It means a complete absence of pride, 
a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God apart from the redeeming work that God has done in and through us. It is nothing we can produce in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness in a healthy way as we come face to face with God because it highlights our desperate need for him. We must utterly rely on Christ and be completely delivered of self. We must, as Paul reminds us, to crucify the flesh, to die with self and live in Christ. We look to God in utter submission to him and under de utter dependence upon him and his grace and his mercy. So how do you become poor in spirit, you ask? You look up to Christ. Look up into his glorious face. Look up to him who is all-sufficient and ever able and unceasingly desirous of having all of you for all of him so that you can count it all joy to cry out from the depths of yourself and step into the depths of him. As Lloyd-Jones reminds us, to make this poor self grow less and less and to cry out, Jesus Christ, grow me in you. How then do we view Matthew 5, 4, our second beatitude, which states, and I quote, Blessed are they that mourn, as they shall be comforted. Lloyd-Jones notes that the world avoids mourning and that this verse is entirely spiritual in its meaning. This verse and the Beatitudes have reference to a spiritual condition and a spiritual attitude. Lloyd-Jones notes that to mourn is not to be miserable or to put on a facade with a deliberate affect of brightness and jovility. It's not superficial. It's authentic. So what are some ways maybe that you're putting on a facade? And how do you show your authenticity as a Christ follower? Lloyd-Jones posits that the issue is a failure to have a deep conviction of sin and a shallow idea of joy. Here comes another ouch. Do you have deep conviction of your sin? And if so, what does that look like in your life? How do you experience the joy of the Lord? The emphasis in the Beatitudes, according to Lloyd-Jones, is that there comes a negative before a positive conviction before conversion. We fail to see our sin and be convicted of our sin. So how can we experience the joy that God brings by delivering us from our sin? We are to be like Jesus and Jesus was acquainted with grief. Jesus was acquainted with sorrow. Jesus mourned. And as we look to Christ, we too can mourn over our condition but recognize his glorious redeeming sanctifying work and what he wants to do in and is doing in our lives your life lloyd joan writes and i quote the man who truly mourns is a man who is going to repent and then move into thanksgiving for the work of christ so that we can discover the healing and the hope that come and we can sing from psalm 30 11 through 12 and i quote you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praises and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. 
The man who mourns is a serious-minded man, a sober-minded man, a spiritually contemplative man. And because of these views and his understanding of truth, he has a joy unspeakable and full of glory, as Lloyd-Jones states. And as we read in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, and I quote, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Christian ought not be superficial in any way. A deep doctrine of sin, a high doctrine of joy, and the two together produce a blessed, happy one who can mourn at the same time and be comforted. The way to experience that is to read the scriptures, to study and meditate them, to pray, to ask the Lord to do the work in us that only he can do. Let us choose to digest and appropriate these exhortations from our Savior, from these Beatitudes, as we choose to follow Christ more deeply today and every day through the power of the Holy Spirit working within. The purpose of the Christian Life Institute is palpable. We want all who profess Christ to taste and see that the Lord is good from Psalm 34, 8, to want Christ truly, deeply, intimately, and personally to be your all in all. We pray this is a time of refreshment and growth. We value your prayers. Please send any emails to admin at christianlifeinstitute.com. Thank you for joining us for The Living Way, presented by the Christian Life Institute. Our podcasts are available on Thursdays. Please subscribe to our mailing list on our website, christianlifeinstitute.com, to receive notifications about our podcasts, blogs, and other events at CLI. I'm Dr. Katherine Pang. Thank you so much for joining us.